I'm Tim Richard. And I'm Michelle Bolin. And you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. More Train, Less Pain. Dr. Jared Boyd. Jared currently works for the NBA franchise, the Memphis Grizzlies, as a performance physical therapist. Prior to joining the Grizzlies, Jared was on staff at Rehab to Perform, and he's also currently still involved in their Rehab to Perform Academy continuing education platform. Jared attended Virginia Commonwealth University, earning his bachelor's in exercise science, eventually earning a master's in athletic training and a doctorate in physical therapy. As a physical therapist and certified strength and conditioning specialist, Jared's goal is to facilitate return to activity and enhance patients' potential by identifying opportunities to improve function and empowering patients with the tools to live better. Now, within this episode, Jared's living in a world of professional sports with comes with unforeseen situations such as a spotty internet connection. So at a few points in time, Jared's audio is a bit touchy and we apologize for this, but we definitely think this podcast is worth your time. Now I have a list here of Tim and I's biggest takeaways. So first we talk about Jared's current training habits within an NBA schedule. We also dive deep into why developing both yielding and overcoming abilities can make or create the adaptable athlete and why some people are just freaks and can perform at high levels. And Jared dives into specifically how possibly past experiences and behavioral uh, adaptability may influence that. And we coined the term here, hashtag, emotional yielding. Uh, Don't copy that one. (laughs) And some other topics that we dove into is systemic versus movement variability, appreciating all facets of the biopsychosocial model, capacity versus strategy in regards to interventions, metrics, and solution. We also asked Jared how he sees our fields transforming within the next, you know, five, 10 years and what the role of communication will be in that transformation. We also dived in a little bit about social media, which I thought was very interesting, how to use it effectively, and how to avoid the obvious drawbacks of social media. One of the most incredible answers he gave, and Tim provided a philosophical perspective on this, was we asked um, Jared, what's one thing you changed your mind about in the past five years? And so uh, hold on for that answer because it was absolutely amazing. So without further ado, here is our episode with Dr. Jared Boyd. We'll be back to the show after this quick message. Whether you're a trainer, coach, or therapist, our jobs are hard. And oftentimes the last thing we want to do after a long day or week is sit down and write ourselves a quality fitness program. During my first few years out from physical therapy school, I found myself falling into this trap and repeating the same ineffective workouts that yielded the same familiar aches and pains along with the same old strength numbers or running paces. Towards the end, I found that it started to sap some of the enthusiasm I was bringing to the table when working with clients, and I couldn't have that. 
One of the best personal and professional decisions I've made in recent memory was hiring a coach to design my own strength conditioning programs. Removing the pressure of constructing my own workouts was massive and enabled me to experience different facets of training while continuing to progress towards my unique fitness and performance goals. That's why I'm so passionate about my remote personal training service. Every four weeks, you get a new program fully customized around your time demands, injury history, performance goals, and equipment availability. Each exercise in the PDF is linked to a YouTube video of yours truly, so you always know what you're supposed to be doing. We'll chat on Zoom for 30 minutes during the first and last weeks of the program, and I'm available seven days a week for questions or video feedback via email. Take a major step towards your mental and physical health today. Let me program for you so that you can rediscover why you love training in the first place. Find out more by going to timrichart.com slash services. And now back to the show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Get you nice and warm before Tim hits you a little bit. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, Jared, you know, I hope you understand what a monumental moment this is for us because you are officially our first guest here, which is... wow. I know it's very exciting. That's really cool. I'm super <laughs> excited and, and honored. Thank you. Oh, awesome. Thanks for uh, coming on. Uh, so, you know, I consider you a professional who is moving the field forward, getting people to think critically and really changing the educational world of trying to really start people off um, further down a track, which is really going to do great things for the strength conditioning field and physical therapy field. Um, and, you know, we have a hundred things to discuss with you today, but Tim and I both really value our own personal training habits because we both consider it an opportunity to gain, you know, implementation experience and work on things for ourselves before we, you know, implement things with other people. So, mm -hmm. you know, enlightened people, I would love to hear about your current training habits and passions. Yeah, that's the... Uh, that's a great question because right now it's like one of those things where it's very, I, I would, I would have to say I'm kind of abiding by which our surmise most of us are like this agile periodization. Uh, and it's more so for me just because of the logistical constraints of being in the league where there can be unforeseen obstacles and change of schedule. There's a lot of traveling. So it's really challenging for me to, uh, be committed to one specific regimen right now. So it is a lot of, of, of agile periodization and uh, programming, programming kind of on the fly. But a lot of it is, is also contingent on my quote unquote readiness, which is relatively subjective right now uh, with maybe a little bit of objective data in regard to like, you know, my aura ring, what does that say? But, but, not, but not placing full stock in that in regard to my decision-making. So I kind of look at it like, you know, there, there are these macro nutrients or these macro uh, movements or inputs that I really need. So we can look at it uh, the same way we would with nutrition or food and that there are certain things that are probably non-negotiables that I need to make sure that I, I provide my body with sustenance from. So I look at it the same way with my exercise selection right now and that I want to make sure I get some stimulus and some input of uh, I, the way that I term it. And this isn't, you know, from me specifically, uh, but, but biomotor, 
bioenergetic and biodynamic. So biomotor being something that's more force output, max force perhaps, uh, maybe more CNS taxing. So I need some kind of uh, stimulus or input from, from that. Uh, bioenergetic be being something that is uh, the stimulus that I can replicate or, or reproduce repeatedly over time. Uh, so that's going to be something that has low force, but uh, the volume is going to be higher. And then biodynamic might live kind of in the middle uh, where we're touching maybe on power, we're doing some elasticity, stretch, shorten cycle, energy storage, release kind of uh, activity. So me being able to kind of quote unquote surf the curve, as they like to say, uh, I think is something that I'm trying to abide by right now. And then I just, in regard to the actual selection of exercises that I'm using, the modalities are, are endless, but again, it's going to be constrained based off of where we are in the environment and what we have available. Uh, and then also me just trying to titrate that dose according to you know, what my body really needs and the limitations that, that I have. Uh, so th I don't know if that's, that's like very, very specific, but it's just a, an overview because uh, again, it's really not incredibly uh, specific right now in regard to what I am doing. Uh, but I know those are like the big rocks that I try to touch on throughout the week. So I'm, I'm super interested in this. This was my idea for a question. Cause I think when, you know, when we talk to all these incredibly intelligent people in the fields of PT and strength and conditioning, kind of nothing is more illuminating to see what they practice, you know, in, in their own day to day. Um, is there a set number of days that you yourself are training or is that also incredibly variable? Mm, yeah. Uh, <laughs> right now I would say my ideal goal is typically to try to get four to five days a weekend. Uh, and that's usually going to be, you know, if I could get five, then it would be two days of a biomotor, kind of like a heavier lift, uh, something that's more perhaps integrated compound, more effort involved. Uh, and then we have, you know, maybe two days where I'm getting more bioenergetic uh, and then some kind of one day of, of this biodynamic where it's more of me trying to explore, find and feel. Uh, but then also, again, get into some some tendon elasticity work as well, just so I can make sure that there's maintenance or some kind of uh, stimulus provided to each constituent within the body when we when we look at different uh, d different musculoskeletal system components. Um, so, so that's kind of how I try to scale things a little bit. No, that's that's badass. And you're um you're in the bubble right now, right? Yeah. So we so so actually now the bubble is is done, but um you know what what we do now is essentially when we travel, we they're trying to make sure that uh, we are playing that team twice that week. So you know before before this year we would perhaps maybe play a team uh, in a different state and then we would go to a different state and play a different team uh, but now they're trying to confine us there so there's not a lot of travel uh just to maybe help out with trying to eliminate the potential that someone does have uh come down with with COVID. crazy times huh oh man it really is <laughs> Tim, I, uh, I know you got a bunch of questions for Jared, huh? I think I got probably just one big one, and then we can kind of like run amok and have some fun here. Um, Let's do it. So Jared, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the content that you put out on Instagram. And I think a couple days ago, and just for the context of the listener, today is the 24th of January, 2021. But a couple days ago, um, you put out, 
essentially a post comparing capacity versus strategy and kinetics versus kinematics. So I think before I ask you a question related to that, would you mind maybe given like a 30 or 60 second synopsis on like what some of the overarching themes that you were trying to convey in that posts in that post were? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's something that's really been kind of at the forefront of my mind recently. So how I try to delineate those two is exactly what you said. And that when I look at kinetics, it's more so going to align itself with capacity or force uh, or strength. So sometime, th some type of quality that might be more objectively measurable. Uh, and then I can contrast that with kinematics, which would be more movement or form or position, uh, the acquisition of, of skill and, and uh, technique. So that's kind of how I delineate those two. And a lot of times those are the, the models, uh, whether it's something that we think about or not, the subconscious models that we tend to ascribe to in order to create uh, more pragmatic decisions. And then we employ certain methods that are underpinned by either kinetics or kinematics. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. And so, I, you know, I think you're pretty well known as a clinician who has a certain level of expertise and familiarity with tendinopathy. How do you see those concepts of, um, you know, capacity versus mechanics or kinetics versus kinematics applying to the tendinopathy type of situation that you probably commonly deal with in the MBA? Yeah, for sure. That's a great question. So, you know, I try to have some level of ambivalence with these things because because of the fact that you know they, they are kind of like this dichotomy uh, but i think sometimes that can be it can create and incite some divisiveness uh, in, in our field whether you're a physical therapist or a strength coach or, or a chiropractor personal trainer uh, and so what i try to do is say hey, both of these are going to have this bi-directional influence with with one another uh, but there might be certain instances throughout the reconditioning process where we want to make sure that we're focusing perhaps on, on one more than the other. Again, understanding that they co-evolve with, with one another. So in, in the case of tendinopathies, um, the first priority for me and what I would say that a lot of the literature would probably posit as well is that uh, we know some type of low discrepancy is typically going to be the impetus for exceeding that tissue's capability of handling that particular uh, kinetic force or load, either at that magnitude, at that rate, or uh, for that repeated exposure. And so if we can try to understand what the provocator is, we could perhaps maybe remove that provocator, that instigator for, for time to allow that, that tendon to become less irritable or less sensitive, but then understanding that we have to re-expose it to that particular uh, stressor so that it's more equipped and it has the prerequisites able to handle uh, that stress. Again, at that magnitude, meaning the, the amount the rate, meaning how quick, or uh, the, the reproducibility of it. So thinking, uh, can it handle the volume? Can it do that, that stretch shortened psychoactivity uh, over the, the required amount of time? Um, but I think sometimes where there can be some divisiveness is when, let's take a runner, for example, who has uh, Achilles tendinopathy. Uh, we could potentially look at that through the lens of, well, they might have acquired that because of some kind of uh, suboptimal uh, strategy or kinematic with their, their run. 
running. So we need to manipulate and, and adjust their running, refine it, and that will therefore reduce the load. But it's really challenging to, to change and refine someone's uh, running strategy, at least something that's going to uh, be consistent after a period of time. So they might be able to maybe adopt that pattern or use a metronome perhaps to maybe attenuate and, and, and resolve some of the forces and some of the uh, discomfort that they're, that they're experiencing. Uh, but over a sustained period of time, a lot of the literature shows that people tend to revert back to their selected and preferential running cadence and their, their running strategy. Um, and this is because it's usually more economical for them. It's more efficient for them and it requires less cognitive load and effort. But that's not to say that there isn't certain instances where it might be warranted to intervene on their kinematics. I just look at it through the lens of, we wanna make sure they have the strength in order to handle their preferential strategy. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely love that. And I thank you for that answer. So, I'm just trying to think. So let's let's go back to the case of the runner. So like running is a pretty stereotyped, like repetitive motor behavior. Would there be then a big discrepancy between the NBA players that you manage where they have to self-organize into all sorts of wild and crazy shapes to do amazing things on the court and something that might be a little bit more, you know, repetitive, 10,000, 15,000 steps in a four mile run or something like that? Yeah, uh, for, for sure. And yeah, really, really good question. Something that I'm still trying to grapple with right now. So, you know, <laughs> what, everything I'm saying right now, it's like all of these thoughts and, and, and these beliefs and these biases that I have, first of all, they are biases and they're all impeachable uh, for sure. And there, there are probably going to be things that I change my mind on right when we're done with this podcast, when I self-appraise the answers that I, were given, that I was given to your questions. Uh, but I would say that... Um, the, the big delineation between those two, thinking of running, like you said, very sterile. Um, and, and we have these kind of attractor states that we all can relatively agree upon or, and might remain somewhat ubiquitous amongst most runners. Um, it's it's going to be different from maybe this team sport athlete or, uh, in my case, basketball, where it is more, I would say, perhaps reactive and hind brain oriented where there's going to be obviously more change of direction involved there's going to be more a change of direction involved here and so i think the, the biggest thing to, to understand is that if something is more reactive and reflexive and, and hind brain driven it's very challenging to determine uh the the position that they must demonstrate to us in a training, especially in a manner where they're reconditioning from an, from an injury. So it might be more incumbent on us to say, hey, let's just ensure that they have the affordances or the, the, the strength to handle those, uh, those, those strategies that we know are going to be displayed in the sport. Because in that sport, you know, in team sports, in an in a open loop environment, it's either they're trying to prevent, so play defense or produce, uh, so demonstrate some kind of offense. When we go to running or gymnastics or even diving, for example, it's a, you know, single, it's just that one individual and, and the kinematics might matter more because the kinematics are going to be the things that are, are being used to determine the quality of the activity as well as to determine the, the success because uh, they're being judged for that. 
So you would advocate for these more open loop type of activities, field and court sport that physical therapists and coaches might be better served to allocate, you know, their, their time, attention, their resources towards things like kinetics that are probably a little bit more generalizable, a little bit easier to intervene on a little bit easier to measure and track. Yeah, that uh, that's the lens that I take currently, but I think there's a caveat, right? Because if we think about uh, in in training situation or reconditioning when an athlete coming in to see us uh, from a potential uh, uh, injury, then we have to understand that if we believe a certain tissue to be at fault or to have some kind of uh, uh, decrement in it due to the injury, then we want to make sure we put them in a position or organize them in a manner that allows that particular tissue to incur the force necessary to increase its capacity. And so I think that we have to understand that the kinematics still do matter. So for example, if we put someone in a split squat and they have an excessive forward trunk lean, the moment arm we know is going to be shifted to perhaps the, the posterior chain a little bit more. But if we thought that the quad is the area that needs to be intervened upon or lacks uh, a sufficient capacity, then perhaps we want to promote more of an upright vertical torso to increase the moment arm of the quads to make sure that that tissue is having force or in stress allocated to it appropriately. Um, so that when they get into the terminal task or the emergent activity, now we feel comfortable that if they get into a, a, a kinematically challenging or biomechanically disadvantageous position, they have enough of a buffer to handle that because we've appropriately dosed the quadriceps. Yeah, I, I love that. And that's something that I think you and Doug Kachijan talked about quite a bit in your recent um, podcast over at Resilient. We can link that in the, in the show notes. But like to me, that made so much sense about the utilization of either, you know, highly supported weight room exercise or even machines where, you know, there's, there's just not that many ways to do it where you can be really selective about the tissue that you're targeting. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, because that's that's how I think of it is, uh, well, what is our intention, first of all? And then we can we can constrain it, as you just mentioned. Uh, you know, I look at it as though they're going to be uh, we're, we're trying to maybe reduce and turn down the noise of some of these degrees of freedom so that we can appropriately dose that that specific region um, and acquire the adaptation that we believe is necessary for that athlete. But I think there's certainly a time and place for them to maybe demonstrate the ability and the competency to change levels against gravity without those constraints uh, that are confining them. Awesome. What, um, what would you say, so I know patellar tendinopathy is incredibly prevalent with, with your athletes in the NBA. How much do you go into trying to improve things like, you know, ankle eversion or inversion, ankle dorsiflexion, hip flexion, when you're thinking about managing an athlete with recurrent patellar tendinopathy? Mm, yeah. Oh man, that's a good question. <laughs> um, so the way I kind of look at it, and, and maybe this is just a general process and frame of thought that I typically have uh, for, for any kind of case, regardless of, of, of tendinopathy, uh, is, is kind of reverse engineering the process. So understanding what is the terminal task, what is the required capacity, and then where is their current uh, shortfall or, or, or pitfall? Where, where, what do they lack right now? So then I can kind of use this tiered system to determine what the key ingredients are that are really necessary 
for the end product or really necessary to make sure that this recipe comes to fruition. Uh, so, you know, when I think of it in, in that terms, my first line of defense is going to be to go to the symptomatic, the irritable uh, tissue that, that we believe to be at fault or to lack the sufficient uh, qualities and prerequisites necessary. Uh, so in the case of patellotendinopathy, I'm going to do something specific to that tissue in order to create this buffer and to create this bandwidth for that tissue to handle the the forces that it, that it needs to but then once we've kind of checked that box and we've we've intervened on it appropriately then we can start to say okay well if this is something i think as you mentioned that is repetitive is persistent it keeps rearing its head throughout the season and throughout the years is there perhaps uh, something else that 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 is constraining them or uh, something else that might be this causative factor that's kind of amalgamating to this uh, this tendency for them to continue to have repetitive uh, tendinopathy. So we start to go down the list of these buckets of need, as I like to call it, and say, what is their joint potential? Meaning, do they have the requisite capability or these basal level constituents to get in certain positions that they need to uh, in their desired or required activities. So, you know, we could check that for with, with quote unquote range of motion oriented uh, positions to determine if they can they can get into that. Uh, we can also look at capacity of other tissues. So not just the isolated tissue, but for example, for the patellar tendon, it might be important to look at soleus strength as well. So we can test the, the soleus strength because we know that's gonna be a tissue that helps to uh, mitigate and attenuate ground reaction forces and, and especially with change of direction activities. Uh, and so, we can then also look at a movement competency, which is more of the kinematics, but that might be tier three for me, looking at you know how how they move and what what expression of behavior they have on a perhaps a force plate. If there's a huge deviation of, of, of movement or a strategy that they're selecting that might not be conducive, that is continuing to perpetuate this. So to your to your question, to, you know, I, I kind of just go back to first principles in a way and say, what are the basal level constituents? Let's make sure those are being resolved. And then we kind of slowly funnel down until we get a little bit more uh, specific if this is something that continues to, to rear its head. I don't do too much uh, in regard to rear foot. Um, eversion inversion in in particular and and that might just be you know again that's that's just the lens that i look at uh when it comes to rehab uh, is trying to look at the macro first and then slowly kind of peeling back the layers if i feel like things aren't aren't resolving uh as as, as efficiently and effectively as they should yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I think despite my best efforts to construct like a uh, a Jared Boyd straw man of the only thing that matters is kinetics. I think what you said is eloquent <laughs> and something that I 100% agree with, which is, you know, physical therapists don't have to choose between capacity and position. We don't have to choose between kinetics and kinematics. And I think your prioritization of one over the other probably speaks volumes to the context that you practice in. A hundred percent, man. And you know, uh, Tim, I like what you said too about like people often think that they have to specifically choose. Uh, and I think probably some of that comes with just our inherent nature of being humans and having some some of this uh, tribalism within us of like we, that we have to ascribe to something and I have to defend it end, end, endlessly. Um, and, and I think that sometimes that might yield 
more problematic outcomes. And we forget to understand that the other end of the spectrum is important as well. How do we marry those two, two things together? So, you know, again, everything probably does matter, but there's gonna be certain instances with certain athletes in certain situations where something might matter more than another. Uh, and even more so than mattering, can we even test what truly does matter? Uh, and then can we, because if we can't test it, objectively especially, it's gonna be hard for us to determine when we need to intervene on it and if our intervention is yielding efficacious outcomes. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think back to something I've heard David Gray say a bunch of times, which is, you know, his favorite spot to sit is right on the fence because he can see both sides of the fence. Mm, I love that. Yeah, that's a great one. I'm going to have to steal that one. I love analogies like that. <laughs> before uh, before Michelle falls asleep, let's get it back on. <laughs> well, what, what's great about that is you obviously reflect and, you know, answer these questions as a pr practitioner. But something I'm super interested in is like your role as an educator because you are involved in an educational platform, which I stated um, in the beginning of this podcast. And, you know, for you, I really appreciate how you, you speak in overarching concepts, because you're trying to give people, you know, a, a plan, you know, you, you referred to buckets and tier systems and categorizations, but then also appreciating how they interact and influence each other. Unlike in, in my experience, I'd be interested to hear about your academic experience, but I think they really just talk about specific methods um, without really providing you something to be able to critically think of the specific methods that apply to your context um, that you're working in. So how do you consider these things in terms of your educational experience and now as an educator to people in your field? Yeah, uh, that's that's a great point, Michelle. I know you've done a fantastic job yourself with the principles and the methods as well. I think it's so important uh, for for us to you know really promulgate that because it'll allow people to really kind of have the self appraisal process. And um, you know, for me, I, I, I certainly think that. Uh, the methods do matter. And, I, and I, the reason I say that is because sometimes I, I wonder, and I just want to make sure that people don't have this misconception that I don't think the methods matter because the methods certainly uh, do matter because those are the tactics and the strategies that we're employing to actually get some kind of outcome. Um, so, so they have to matter. But I think what, what happens is um, similar to what we were just alluding to of people will, will subscribe themselves to certain methods and become very myopic and not have the capability of creating or, or taking a detour when they hit a roadblock. Um, and so, so I think that we become less adaptable as clinicians and movement practitioners if we don't understand our, our first principles in order to then you know, take that detour and update our GPS system from a clinical reasoning standpoint and select a different strategy or method that might be more conducive for the athlete. And so, what I've tried to do is, is kind of over these last two years, and I'm still updating this, we have these conversations probably, you know, every other day within the facility in regard to principles and methods. Uh, but, you know, and, and, and I really have updated my principles and, I, and I'm not even certain exactly, you know, what, what they are right now. I'm still trying to uh, sift through that a little bit, but 
um, the, the big thing is that principles should be something that help to, to give me these guideposts and, and give me some kind of a guardrail so that I can have a better foundational framework and starting ground to where then my methods are going to funnel through those, those principles that I have in place. And then the end goal is going to be my intent. So am I looking to have someone acquire an adaptation or am I looking for someone to demonstrate uh, some kind of task, right? So the end of the funnel is demonstration or adaptation. The funnel itself is going to be these methods or strategies and tactics that I'm going to be using. Uh, and then at the top of that are going to be the filter, if you will, or the things that are making sure, hey, what, what are the actual principles here? And they're going to be more so predicated on these different uh, scientific entities when we think of biology and psychology and physiology, chemistry, things of that nature. Uh, so I think if we can think in, in those terms and understand that the principles are going to be something that, that are specific to your environment, but perhaps should exist in more than one domain, then I think that gives you a little bit more of a, of a better pragmatic framework to, to uh, work off of. Uh, so, you know, for me, for example, one of the, the principles that, that I have uh, would be systems variability. And, you know, I used to term that movement variability, but it's like, well, movement isn't the only expression and the only entity of variability. I think variability is something that's ubiquitous and is going to be uh, present amongst all domains of, of human life. Uh, and so if we don't have variability, we truly do lack the capacity to adapt and evolve and be able to handle uh, different types of, of, of perhaps stressors that we're involved with. Um, so we can have variability from a linguistic perspective of, hey, I have a different type of, of dialect and linguistic with, uh, when I'm with my friends versus in a professional setting. We have movement variability. I need to express stiffness sometimes or I need to express uh, compliance sometimes. Um, there's going to be times where we think of it from a monetary standpoint. I don't want to perhaps if I'm, if I'm investing, put all of my money in the same uh, stock. I want to have variability in where I'm spreading and allocating my funds as well. So I think variability is something that exists across more than one domain. So if we then kind of boil it down to our actual environment, which is movement, uh, then it's like, well, movement variability is something that should probably be a key principle there and that we want to ensure um, that these people have metabolic and mechanical variability, metabolic in regard to uh, the, the power duration ratio and relationship, and then mechanical in regard to, as I alluded to, uh, stiffness versus uh, compliance. So can they, you know, go back and forth amongst that spectrum amongst those continuums uh, so that we can ensure that they have the resources to handle the rigor of different types of, of, st of stressors and stimuli. So I, you touched on something that was kind of the second big thing that, that I did want to ask you. And I, I don't think this is going to be as deep of a rabbit hole as, as the previous uh, discussion, but um, I've heard you speak a lot about sort of this interplay, like a lot of NBA players are really good at what they do because they don't yield to force. They're incredibly elastic and they use incredibly short ground contact time to sort of bounce off the court to do amazing things. 
And it seems like there would be this interplay between a performance aspect where we want those things to occur and a, and a health aspect where we're trying to prolong these contact times or we're trying to teach these athletes to yield to force better. I'm super interested to just hear you talk about that because it seems like if you if you took an athlete and you made them overly yieldy, for lack of a better word, you <laughs> might be robbing them of some of the explosivity that makes them the athlete that they are. Mm, yeah, yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I, and I think that probably goes back to the uh, intention and the priorities of where we are in the, the season, right? So, you know, the way that I try to understand this and play with this concept is looking at, you know, a general physical preparation phase or, or the GPP is, is that we, we want to perhaps have more variability. We can have a little bit more of this yieldy uh, concept and strategies in place, but as we get closer towards the season, and especially in season, um, but, but I would say even just our, our SPP phases, uh, then that's going to be, very prudent for us to start to provide them more of with these these stiffness uh, oriented strategies to make sure that when they get into play this isn't overwhelming this is an inciting stimulus that over that, that truly does overwhelm and overtax especially the tendon or the muscular tendon junction itself um, now when we talk about in season well they're already getting the stimulus of, of plyometrics and they're already tapping into this energy storage release uh, me me mechanistic function. So we don't have to really use those strategies uh, within their, their preparation. We can then start to do the complete opposite to make sure that we're giving them a dose of something else so that they are having expressions throughout the continuum um, of, of yielding versus perhaps overcoming if we want to delineate it that way. Um, so when I, when I think of, of yielding, I kind of almost think of it in the sense that it, it's almost an interplay really between um, stiffness and, and compliance because of the fact that the, the yielding to me is, is this grounded eccentric deceleration is usually how I typically try to um, implement those strategies. And I, I don't often do too much of that unless someone is recovering from a specific lower limb injury, tendinopathy and muscle strain especially, uh, where I wanna make sure that before we get into full-fledged plyometrics, this is like the pre-plyo the pre integration right here to make sure that they have the coordinative uh, adaptation and qualities necessary, that they have the psychological resiliency to get into this grounded uh, eccentric deceleration before we get into something where they're going to have to demonstrate more expression of, of force and velocity, and they're actually leaving the, the ground. Uh, but even more than that, you know, the, the reason this is important, and this is something that I've been thinking about as well, of, of why is this important or why is yielding going to be something that is important? Because if I, if I don't yield appropriately, then it's hard for me to then overcome in the direction that I'm in, that I'm, I'm attempting to move or change direction in. So if we think of, of, of trying to change direction, I have to slow down my momentum first and momentum is mass times velocity and velocity is change in displacement over time. So I need a large amount of, of force eccentrically to slow down my velocity or decelerate and then 
I'd have to, 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 to change my vector or to change uh, the orientation of my body to move in a different direction. So I need to appropriately yield uh, in order to make sure that I'm redirecting that potential energy into kinetic energy. Uh, so I think those strategies are incredibly important to use and implement during a, a reconditioning case uh, specifically. So, so just to reiterate that, because I, I absolutely love what you just said. And I think a lot of people over the past year have watched that Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance, where like, like later stage Michael Jordan is just fucking crushing weights, <laughs> right? And, it, you know, it, like it's, it seemed to have worked for him. But I just think of, you know, every conversation I, I have with someone that's in pro sports, they always talk about, you know, people think in the in season, what we're doing, you know, what we're doing is getting people stronger, but it, it really looks like just keeping people healthy and available. So I just wanted to clarify from my own understanding. So you're saying like in a, in a general physical preparedness block, so like far preseason or immediately after a playoff run, you're doing a lot of movement variability work. You're doing a lot of yielding work. And then as you build up to the season, the specific preparation period, that's when you'll start to incorporate things like, like more jumping, more like rebounding. And then as they go in season, because they're already getting that from the games they're playing, you'll actually go back down and it'll start to look more like the general work again to keep them healthy. Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's spot on. Um, and, and that's probably going to be something that's dependent on, on the sport. But when we think about the amount of games. I mean, this season is 72 games. And then we think about the frequency of exposure to those games. And then we think about the specific um biological and mechanical stressors that are going to ensue the the, the organism's uh, capacities it's like okay well we have to make sure that we're we're there's this competing and, and this con this contrast between what well, we, we want to give them some kind of a stress because we, we want to maintain or minimize the decrement in functional capabilities but we don't want to overstress them either so that we then remove their potential to be ready for the next game, because that's going to be the thing that really does matter. That's the most meaningful task. And that is the emergent output that, that matters the most. So there's this fine line of making sure that we dose them appropriately. So exactly to your point, it's, it's finding that dose, um, but probably giving them some, some other components uh, that are included within the GPP, but we, we insert that uh, within the, uh, the, the season itself, but then also, understanding that we we probably periodically are going to touch on some of this like max force production because of the fact that that is going to just slowly over time if we never touch it start to dwindle and, and maybe disappear because we know that it, you know if, if i don't use it i lose it and, and strength is going to be especially even power uh, is going to be uh some some of those biomotor qualities that we can start to see be removed if we don't touch on those uh, maybe at least once to, to perhaps twice a week, maybe, maybe not power because they're doing that all the time uh, on the court, uh, but may, maybe making sure that we maintain some semblance of, of true strength qualities can be relatively protective for their health and perhaps even uh, reserve some of their functional capabilities as we get into the depths of the season. Awesome. Sounds, we are all about the adaptable athlete here, and I feel like you just gave a fantastic definition of what an adaptable athlete would be. Um, now, you deal with some high-level athletes now. 
How do you think some people are just like freaks and can perform at high levels, experience low amounts of injury or pain and handle high amounts of volume? Yeah. Uh, if, I, <laughs> if I had to give, <laughs> give one answer, I would probably say uh, genetics. <laughs> and then, um, so, so it's definitely, it's definitely going to be genetics, but uh, you know, to, to, to even kind of peel back the layers on that, genetics certainly matter, but the environment is going to matter as well. So I, I look at that, especially those who are, who are just incredible at what they do of making sure that they, they have this functional variant so that they're incredibly malleable. They have variability perhaps. And so this probably is something that was incurred because of the fact that they were exposed to a multitude of different stimuli stressors uh, that came from being exposed to different environments. Uh, so now those genes that, that they inherently have were able to be expressed to a certain extent. Uh, but even, even, you know, more than that, because I know a lot of times we look at just the, the physicality of these athletes. Uh, we look at the physiology that they're able to uh, adapt to or to acquire. Um, another thing that's important is their, their psychological adaptability as well. I think it's going to be incredibly important. Uh, and their psychomotor capacities also, which will make them incredibly adaptable. Because if they don't have that, but they do have, you know, the physical constituents um, and, and they're adaptable in that manner, then the lack of psychological adaptability might preclude them from the ability to express the physical uh, capacities that they do that they do have. Um, so I, I think that's going to be something important for, for them as well. And that's something that, you know, we can't truly we, we can't make shift to that. It's just something that, that happens, you know, as they matriculate uh, through through the years and, and have been exposed to, to different uh, types of things. I think there's this one saying that trauma breeds talent. So, you know, some some athletes that have maybe experienced more uh, perhaps stressors and, and maybe had more arduous types of, of, of life uh, circumstances might potentially be more adaptable because now they have the ability uh, to, to, to cope with different stressors. And it's not as overwhelming to them uh, from a psychological perspective, from a biological standpoint, endocrine systems as well. All these things have, have been exposed to that. So they have the capacity to potentially uh, cope with any kind of change. So they are inherently more malleable to any kind of fluctuations or invariances within the system. That, uh -huh. I, I thought that's an incredibly interesting answer uh, for, for someone that works in the NBA. And I, the entire time you were speaking, I couldn't help but think about, again, not to, not to over-reference it, but the Michael Jordan documentary where, you know, it seems like what consistently fueled him was anger was a you know was a was a <laughs> notion that the world didn't think he could and that his coaches didn't think he could i'm curious like do you because i'm sure you find yourself among a wide array of personalities is it the person that is fueled by you know negative emotion or one driving thought that tends to succeed the most or is it that person that's sort of like most of the time they're chill they can turn it up when they need to but they're kind of like they're a little bit more you know, to overuse the word adaptable or malleable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, Sam, I would say it's probably going to be the person, 
this is again bias and this is just my my perception right now um is that there has to be the ability to dial up and then dial back down so that to me is going to be someone who is amenable to different types of environments so they are they are malleable they are variable or adaptable the, the person who is perhaps more um they have this this kind of the, the, the world is against them kind of mentality, um, they, they might have the ability to turn it up a lot and, and show and demonstrate some amazing feats that we've never seen. It's like, wow, this individual is amazing, but they might eventually burn out. They might not be able to always consistently, especially in this sport, again, thinking about the frequency of, of games, they might not be able to tap into that mechanism over and over and over again. It might have some deleterious effects on the system if they're always going pedal to the metal, full throttle with those emotions all the time uh, and, and never get a chance for those things to maybe resolve and go back to baseline, as opposed to the person who is maybe more even keel perhaps, and they can turn it up when they need to. They're more selective. They have more conscious control over the expressions of those emotions as well. Then they, they can kind of pick and choose their spots uh, or pick and choose the games um, where those emotions are going to be specifically and strategically providing them with some kind of a, a, a necessary output from a functional uh, capacity standpoint. Um, but then they also have the ability to kind of dial back down as well. So that to me is someone that might be able to persist for longer. They might not have as many highlight reels as the other person, uh, but they, they might be able to stick around for, for even longer as well. Uh, but I think you have to be able to, to, to express both of those. And wouldn't that be uh, Dennis Rodman in that documentary? <laughs> mm, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it makes game. It it makes me think of you know Jared. You talked about um you talked about the notion of systems variability versus just you know movement variability, and it's like you know we hear a lot about these these fractal representations and the same patterns appearing over and over and over. And I can't help but thinking like you know it's almost like that that you know fucking like eleven out of ten game energy is mm. in a lot of sense like that ply that like, almost like plyo elastic high force kind of thing. And yes. it's like an athlete's gonna break if the only thing that they ever know how to do is is produce incredibly high amounts of force because it's not sustainable so it's almost like there's this there's this physical yielding that would almost be married to this like uh you know more i don't know like a more relaxed cognitive state or like a, a less aroused state and i just think that's a super it's you know it's kind of it's kind of the same thing but in a radically different domain oh it definitely yielding. is yeah oh i like that yeah, this 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 can go somewhere for Copyright. sure. I'm gonna have to uh, I'm gonna have to write some notes on this. I mean, th that's the thing I love about these podcasts, though, uh, is that they really force you to reflect afterwards. And so, this is a, a concept that I should probably investigate more because it's a great question, um, and I think it's one that's that's important as well because then you can potentially understand a, a, another added variable that that might be a reason as to why there's these these injuries that occur because of the fact that well if they don't have the ability to maybe curate or or turn down their emotion 
the expression of certain emotions or things that are driving them and they are always at 11 out of 10 and they are always then having more force and they're very angry and they're doing things with a lot of rigidity that potentially could be another element that that might potentially incite injury i'm not saying that that's going to be the the key driver but it's just another element to i think maybe keep in mind uh, because again like i said everything everything certainly does matter is just understanding when it when it matters and when it's more important and when you should pull that lever with that athlete which is probably contingent on your relationship and rapport with them uh especially when we talk about trying to broach some kind of topic like emotions um but but i think it's such an incredible question and something that that i'm definitely going to start thinking about we will be back after this brief message Are you going to courses, seminars, and online mentorships, but still aren't confident about what assessments to use or how to build out your training programs? The Strategy Course Group Classroom is an eight-week process designed to problem-solve, strategize, and organize your values into a flexible training system that will create efficiency for you and results for your clients. The next group starts May 3rd, 2021. Don't want to wait? There is a strategy complete coaching course fully online option as well. I guarantee this will be the best educational investment you will make. If you don't think so, head over to michellebolin-training.com to see what people are saying. You can uh, you can send the royalty check to Rich Art Performance and Rehabilitation <laughs> care, care of Denver, Colorado. <laughs> I, can, I can give you a little bit off of that one for sure. <laughs> That's fine. Well, in regard to that, like, I would consider you a very well-read individual who takes learning very seriously. So, you know, what drives you to keep learning and what's your learning strategy? And that's definitely a question. And, but I also want to kind of like secretly dive into social media, which Tim referenced before mm. of like, you know, how do you use social media? Because in some aspects, it can be used as an educational platform to get people to critically think, but then how do you also avoid the obvious drawbacks of social media? Mm. So I think there's, let's start with your learning strategies first. Yeah. um, I'm still trying to determine the best approach for the acquisition of of knowledge uh, and, and, and information and how to sift through the noise to be, you know, admittedly honest, um, you know, this year, my my new year intentions, um, try not to say new year resolution, my, my wife doesn't really like that. So she was like, hey, let's, <laughs> let's change it to intentions, which I, I, I prefer. I'm a big semantics person. I think intentions, at least for me, um, is, is more conducive to what I want to get out of the year as opposed to just resolutions. So, you know, I'm getting tangential, but what I'll say is that, you know, my intention, one of them this year this sort of blueprint curricular where I wanted to allocate my attention and my focus from an educational or didactic perspective. One of them is biomechanics and biomechanics, which would include kinematics and, and kinetics. Uh, but then also looking at dynamic systems theory, but getting into the, the nitty gritty of it in regard to not just performance, because I think we usually look at it in regard to, hey, there's these three entities that allow someone the ability to have this movement behavior, uh, depending on the constraints that are imposed on the organism. Uh, but I also want to 
go down you know this route in regard to dynamic systems theory, looking at uh, potential injury as well and the manifestation of, of injury. So once I figured out those two things, it's like, all right, where do I, are there certain courses that align with, with me being able to be successful in achieving my learning outcomes? Uh, so check that box off. Uh, but then also, are there certain articles that coincide with each of those domains as well? Uh, and then lastly, what can I do to help me maybe deliver that information to someone else? Because if I can deliver it, if I can speak about it or write about it, it's probably a representation that I've truly, not necessarily mastered, but started to understand how that, uh, that domain fits into my practice. And, and I've started to maybe refine it in a way that is helpful for me in, in my environment. So, you know, that's kind of how I look at it. Again, biomechanics, dynamic systems theory is where I'm really alloc allocating my time, uh, the courses that coincide with it, reading materials. And then from there, I need to express and formulate my ideas and articulate it in a manner uh, that makes sense to me and be able to express it to, to someone else. Um, so that's kind of the strategy that I intend to take this year to really have a, a little bit more of like a, a, a specific uh, focus as so that I don't become so sidetracked because it's so easy to become sidetracked. Like you said, in regards to social media, where there's almost like this appeal to novelty uh, and appeal to, uh, to, to this popularity as well. Um, and it's hard to understand, you know, what's, what's actually purposeful, what's actually important. So for me, it's being selective about who I am going to attend to. Uh, and that's why I'm, I'm relatively specific and, and strategic about who I follow. Uh, you know, for, for me, I'm following people that I think will really add to my critical thinking lens or people who really kind of push the envelope in regard to not necessarily this appeal to novelty, um, you know, not, not only showing exercise and just saying, hey, try this or have an X and a check beside it. But more so it's like, hey, this is the reasoning or the rationale, or they, they may ask questions that force you to critically think about what they are putting out there. I, I tend to, to follow those individuals. So I think people should be more purposeful uh, about who who they are choosing to to follow as well, um, because they can curate their own learning process um, with the, the use of social media, um, or at least maybe have different reference points to say, hey, that looks pretty interesting. Let me mental note that, and then I can kind of go down that route a little later when it might be a, a better time for me. Um, to focus on, on that particular topic. Um, but social media is one of those things where, it, it, to your point, Michelle, uh, it's, it's, I think, challenging for people. And for me, even in regard to posting, you know, people always say, oh my gosh, why do you not have like more, why do you not have more followers? Like you post pretty decent, pretty decent, decent things, which, you know, to that remark, I'm like, I try to have, you know, humility, uh, with that. So I appreciate people who, who say that it's really just me putting myself out there, being able to articulate better or express myself in written word better as well. And then seek, uh, seek back this, 
this critical thinking from the the other parties as well to see what are the potential flaws or blind spots in my my perspective um so that forces me to really grapple with where i stand in regard to what stance i'm making uh so i think that's one reason and i, I just don't post uh often uh is, is another thing so you know maybe once to twice a week. And usually my posts are going to be things that just come to my mind or things that I've, I've been, been thinking about. So they're not things that I, you know, say, hey, tomorrow at this time, I'm going to post. And there's nothing wrong with that at all, because I think it's a great way to build your brand. Uh, but for me, it's just things that are kind of, they, they just happen uh, and, and kind of evolve each and every, each and every day, and each and every, every week. Uh, so for me, it's been a great platform to be able to meet incredible people like yourself and Tim uh, and, and have discussions like these that really push our professions forward. Uh, but also it's been great in regard to me being able to um, learn more as, as well. Yeah, I think, for, my, ahead, I think for myself too, it's, you know, I can discern certain, you know, character, um, qualities or discern qualities from other people that I want to reflect in my own behavior in terms of like avoiding being emotionally attached to things, especially on like a external platform, like social media, like it's a big red flag for me with um, when people kind of express this, um, you know, huge emotions about like what they're doing or what other people do. Yes, for sure. I was just going to say, um, I think, you know, a lot of your posts, the content in the post itself is fantastic. And again, we'll, we'll link your account in the, in the show notes. Um, but both you and Pat Davidson have especially active like comment sections on your posts. And it's really, it's, it's, you know, just fascinating to see, like you said, like how another person's brain interprets that same information and the questions or comments that they came up with. And this is where I, you know, I, I'm not on Twitter, but I've been told Twitter is, is not like Instagram in the sense that Instagram generally, you know, seems to be a somewhat positive space where people are trying to learn mm -hmm. versus just trolling and being like, ah, that's a stupid fucking idea. Like, <laughs> so you're, you know, you're, I, I, I would encourage the listeners, check out, um, check out Jared's Instagram and read some comments because he does a really nice job of interacting with his followers and of kind of like fleshing out these concepts. I appreciate that, Tom. Yeah, man, that, that means a lot. And, and again, it, I, I just really find a lot of, uh, it, it, a lot of great information from, to your point, just being able to look at other perspectives. Because if all we have is our own perspective, then again, we just become very myopic and more entrenched uh, and, and unable to see you know, why there potentially could be shortcomings in the premise that we hold to be subjectively true. And, and even to your point too, Michelle, it's like most of these things where people are having these emotional attachments, um, it's like, well, everything is really to a certain degree made up and relatively subjective. Mm -hmm. uh, even, even these models that we subscribe to, they really just allow us something to navigate the, the world. Uh, and to navigate our terrain in which we're immersed in. But going back to principles, it's like if we have those principles, which are going to be things that are influenced by the different scientific domains, then we can start to truly understand what might be less truthful versus what, what might have more truth to it. And then we can mm -hmm. say, hey, let me, let me focus on, on this area 
uh, because it does coincide with more of the scientific truths than as opposed to perhaps a, a, a different um, a different a different post perhaps. Absolutely. Now, in, in regards to that, going off of that, you know, I consider you someone who has a good kind of gauge on the field as a whole, including, you know, physical therapists, physical therapy, or like sports performance, strength conditioning. Now, how do you see these fields transforming over, you know, next five years, 10 years? Mm, yeah, um, that's a that's a very interesting question. Uh, and, and we talk about that a lot too at the at the facility, you know, with with the staff in regards to you know what what is gonna gonna happen in five, ten, fifteen years? Uh, is it gonna look different or is it gonna look the same? What are the iterations we're gonna see? Um, you know, for, for me, I think the biggest thing that that we could do, and maybe this isn't a huge, profound change, but it's more so of, and, and I think we might start to, we're slowly starting to see this, even though it's like we're starting to see this, but we're also starting to see the counter of it as well, uh, and the having more of of some some concrete principles and objectives in in place so we can have this common language. I think that's where the, the shortcoming is and the divisiveness is. Mm -hmm. And I know that we, we all, again, the, the environment that we're in and the different types of experiences we've had, personal, professional, et cetera, uh, are going to uh, be the factors that influence uh, the expression of language that, that we choose to, to select, as well as the models that we have. But if we can start to maybe agree more as opposed to less than where we are now, uh, there, there could be a little bit more of like this common ground and being able to appreciate each other's professions and, and kind of work together in, in this more symbiotic relationship. Because ultimately we all, I think, share the same ideals, which is to make sure that uh, we're, we're, we're pushing our clients, athletes, patients into a direction that's favorable for them uh, in order to meet their required and desired activities. So it, some of these, you know, other small nuances, I think are relatively futile and trivial. Um, and, and they don't allow us to understand that we probably have more commonalities as opposed to dissimilarities. So for me, you know, I don't know if, if that, I don't know what that would entail and, and how that would would come to, to fruition, but I do think there there has to be maybe more um, more learning. Maybe maybe it's more learning opportunities, more learning platforms uh, where both of those entities, whether strength and conditioning, physical therapy, chiropractic, personal training, are involved uh, on the same platform in regard to decision making or in regard to learning experiences, so people can start to see the the other side of of the coin so to speak uh, so for for me i think that's the direction in which the fields need to move in uh because it would yield more favorable solutions and outcomes for the the patients and the athletes that was great i think the communication aspect that you stated is probably the most challenging thing between different professionals you know even you know the post that we keep referencing over and over about, you know, kinematics is like, you clearly define what that word means before you kind of moved on and expressed your opinions about it. And I think that really allows people to say, oh, well, that's not my definition, maybe explore a little bit deeper. 
Um, and same thing for like, you know, the word strength, you know, that could mean something very different between myself and you. And I think mm -hmm. making sure we sit down and define these things um, just so we can really get on the same level of understanding as our listeners uh, is, is, the, is the biggest thing. And it's something I think about a lot in, in the world of social media as well as uh, a lot of people are stating things and, you know, using words and they're not really, really speaking at the level of understanding of their, or the, their listeners sometimes. So, um, you know, creating clear definitions and going back to, you know, being like, hey, this is what I'm talking about kind of a thing and allowing communication to happen. That, that was a great point. Yeah, I, I love what you just said, too, because like the, the communication matters, the words matter, the words and the semantics matter, because those are the things that will be the catalyst for the thoughts that we have and thus the beliefs and then the behaviors and then the actions as well. So it all starts with the, the, the communication or the semantics of the words as being the impetus. Yeah, and I'll link in the show notes as well the the talk you gave about how even just language with your clients as well and the people that you're working with is probably one of the most important things that that can have an impact on them. Um, so I'll definitely let, link that in the show notes if anyone wants wants to watch like the full video because I think that is something that you know, especially as a young professional, I didn't really understand too much the power of my words and the language that I was using, and I think especially transitioning to the private sector is where I was like, oh, wow, this is, this is one of the most important things I can do. I love that. I love, I love that quote. I, I think I've heard it uh, ascribed to you quite a bit. The, um, the semantics matter. Cause I think people, people like to use the word semantics rather disparagingly, right? They say, oh, that's just a semantic argument, but it's like, of like how we, the words that we choose kind of influence how we think about things and how we choose to frame things in our mind. And that might not seem like a big deal to you, but it's like, I mean, it's the deal to everyone else. A hundred percent. Yeah. And we, and, and it could lead to different, uh, end outcomes and thus end results, depending on how we select to interpret that word. Um, even if we had, let's say we had the, the same, the same clients were in the same environment, everything else, everything is, is relatively similar, but yet we interpret, you know, strength, like Michelle mentioned, we could both view strength as different. So we, we say, Hey, I want you to make sure that this person uh, improves their strength. Well, what is, what does strength really mean? How do we do that? Um, and even the word, you know, improve, it's like improve it by, by how much, what is it, what does improve mm -hmm. really, really mean in regards to where they currently are. So all those things are definitely going to influence our decision-making process. Uh, and the more we can communicate with each other and really nail down, um, the, again, those objective key results, uh, or the needs analysis will, will be a little bit more prudent. Awesome. Um, I, I know we both want to be respectful of, of your time and we're just really grateful to, you know, have you join us today. So kind of the, the one wrap up question that I know Michelle and I are both interested in, um, Jared, I think, you know, you and me have both been practicing physical therapy for well over five years. So this is kind of a, a reasonable time point for this question, but, um, what was one concept that you were fairly married to that you thought was relatively true five years ago that just turned out to be dead fucking wrong? Mm. Okay, so I <laughs> I would probably say Tim, it, it is more so a, a a model 
and it was probably the, the way in which I viewed the model. Uh, and it started, uh, it kind of went through like this roller coaster, which I think probably everything does. Uh, and so, and I tell this story a lot because it's something that I believe in hindsight. Again, we could believe anything in hindsight uh, post talk, but it's like, you know, I, I, I believe that this experience definitely shaped my current outlook and, and kind of overall trajectory. So uh, when I first got out of school, uh, I, I worked at a clinic where there was a doctor of osteopathic medicine uh, who was the lead clinician. It was his clinic. And so he he kind of dictated everything uh, that, that transpired in the clinic. And he was, he was relatively uh, aligned with this biomedical model or this, uh, this kinesiopathological uh, pathoanatomical model, meaning kinesiopathological of the reason that you are injured or in pain is because of the way that, that you move. So again, going back to kinematics or the pathoanatomical model, the reason that you hurt or you're in pain is because of the fact that uh, you have some kind of anatomical, morphological uh, or anthropometric constraint uh, or, hey, there's this disc bulge and this is the number one reasoning for the symptoms that you're experiencing. Uh, and so, you know, by him adopting and aligning himself with both of those models, you could start to see the lens in which he adopted certain methods, but even more than that, his communication habits. So the, the language in which he, he used, I could see what would, would yield unfavorable emotions and behaviors on behalf of the, the clients and the patients. So for example, you know, looking at imaging and seeing uh, some kind, some kind of a, a pathology. Uh, we can use the the hip, for example. Uh, you know, I, I can remember a time where there there was a uh, I want to say maybe a, a labral tear, and so explaining to this patient, 22 years old. Uh, that, you know, never performing squats again below 90 degrees, never rowing again. She, she loved to row. Uh, she, she was a, a, a college level uh, rower. And after college, she just liked to do that as part of, you know, her, her hobby. Um, and then giving that information, disseminating that information to her and then seeing her facial expression and, and her uh, emotions and her affect like severely change started to promote this concept to me of like, that can't be the way in which we give information, nor do I believe that that model is, is right. Because if we believe specific adaptations to impose demands and that everybody is adaptable, um, probably we all have these adaptive ceilings to some degree, depending on other constraints that we have in our life. Uh, but there, there's no reason that she shouldn't eventually, if we are very strategic about our, our uh, principles of graded exposure, for example, that she shouldn't be able to get back to those activities that she's enjoyed. So for me, that was the first uh, stimulant that encouraged me to start to look at the science of pain and, and the biopsychosocial model. But what happened is I started to, I think, maybe align myself only with the psychosocial component of that. Uh, and, and so for me now, it's kind of shifted a little bit back to, hey, I have to remember the B in the 
BPS, the, the, the bio, biological, biomechanical, to understand that that truly does matter as well. It's not just the, the, the psychosocial component. So, you know, to your question, I know it's relatively long-winded. It's like now being in this environment, it's exposed me to the fact that the kinetics and the kinematics 100% are, are variables in the equation of or, or, or the outcome of, of the, the injury or the pain that's experienced on behalf of the organism. So being able to marry those things together. Uh, so that's something that I would say I've really changed my mind on is that it's not just the psychosocial component um, that, that is going to be the causative reasoning uh, for the manifestation of, of injury and, and pain. Uh, and and I kind of like the analogy that Greg Lehman discusses when he talks about how we have, you know, kindling for if we want to start a fire, you know, we have the wood and everything. And those are going to be the constituents that would potentially allow us to make the fire, but they're not enough. So we can look at that as being maybe this pathoanatomical uh, discrepancy in regard to just just pathology within the in the body, so okay, that's the the hip itself that might demonstrate some kind of a a labral tear, perhaps. But that's not enough to warrant and ensue injury or or pain. We need a stimulant. We need an accelerator. So those are going to be the external, uh, perhaps stressors or forces. So the load uh, that we're looking at, frequency, intensity, duration, things of that nature. That then. Uh, are, are the things that, that create the manifestation of pain and injury. So for me, it's looking at the kinetics and the, kin the kinematics as being that accelerant or the stimulant on the, the way in which someone does select to move or the potential constraints or pathology that they might have in a particular tissue. Um, so being able to leverage that and understand those other dials in which I can use to manipulate the stressor to make sure that they can get back to their activities was something that I've kind of slowly evolved to adopt over time. I, I think that's going to be my favorite question to ask guests. I mean, that was, that was an incredibly interesting answer. And I thank you for that. I think um, I'm like, I'm a big armchair philosopher guy. <laughs> I took, I, I took a bit it. too much philosophy in, in college, but there was this German philosopher, Heigl, and, and he talked about the introduction of a concept into society. And when something's a new idea, society loves it. And then over time they migrate to the exact opposite of that idea. And mm. then, and then gradually these two ideologically opposed ideas kind of come together and they unify and that's that's how society is, is progressed forward. I think he called it like the the thesis, the antithesis, and then the synthesis. Mm. So it's like it just made me think about your, you know, your journey through the like like purely biomechanical and then almost purely psychosocial. And now we have this full BPS model, this biopsychosocial mm -hmm. model where we're taking as much into account as possible. And I just think. I don't know. I think we're going to hear a lot of the answers like that, where it's, I thought one thing, and then I thought it was the exact opposite of that thing. And then what I realized over time was both things are incredibly important. And the wider the lens we can take to this problem, the more efficacious we can be in treating it. For sure. I love that. Uh, I like that you're into philosophy. That's pretty cool. We'll have to talk offline uh, more about that stuff because uh, it's super fascinating to me. Uh, and I think it's a way in which we can like help to ask better questions and then maybe even to to get get better answers uh, as well. But to to what you said, that's kind of spot on. I think in regard to what transpired for me throughout these years, and it, it's all 
due to the fact that, you know, I think people have to be willing to be vessels of, of information. Obviously, you know, we have to have like this filter almost to make sure that certain things maybe might not pass the, the BS test, so to speak, but we should be okay with being a, a sponge and acquiring as much information as we can. Um, and if we have those principles in place and we start to develop those, then that's where you know the, the principles are like saying, ah, nope, that's BS, let's move that out the way, let's move this out the way. Uh, but, I, but I do like what, what, what you said in regard to um, you know, the, the synthesis or being able to put everything and marry different models and concepts together to understand what's more pertinent and relevant uh, for, for your environment. I, I, I think that's spot on. Totally. I mean, there's a, a really overused saying like in entrepreneurial cir circles, I think it's something like strong beliefs held loosely. But, it, you mm -hmm. know, when, hearing, hearing you talk about that, I mean, that it's that exact concept that you want to you want to have some kind of conviction in your beliefs, but you don't want to be so rigid that you can't take in any new information and you don't want to be so malleable that the new information absolutely deluges you and then you lose sight of what what the beliefs you had were in the first place. Jeez, I should just, you know, yeah, go get a it. drink right it. now. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, this was as fun as I thought it was going to be. This was amazing. Thank you so much for your time, Jared. No, thank you too. That was fantastic. Uh, we could we could probably talk for another another hour. It was it was really great. Um, again, I got a lot of things that I that I'm going to take some notes on and try to again just pray appraise the the information and and kind of dive down a little bit deeper, especially in regards to what we we're discussing with that uh, emotional variability. Um, but this was this was phenomenal. I appreciate you too for having me on here. Yeah, thanks again for coming on. We, we got to get the hashtag going, emotional yielding. Mm, there we go. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> well, we'll have to do this we again, but thank you so much, Jared. Thank you. So people can find me on uh, Instagram is primarily where I typically post Dr. J Fit Boy. Don't do too much on uh, Twitter. Actually, don't even don't even have a Twitter. I'm trying to be very purposeful about my uh allocation of attention and energy right now. So not having too many <laughs> streams of um, distractions. And then in regard to educational pursuits, uh, I am one of the co-owners and lecturers with R2P Academy, which is a continuing education company uh, from where I used to work as a physical therapist with rehab to perform. And so with R2P Academy, our, our main goal is really to, to try to merge and blend both the physical preparation side of things with strength and conditioning, but also uh, looking at the navigation throughout the reconditioning process. So physical therapy, musculoskeletal injury and health navigation, merging those two things together, looking at not only models, but principles and then efficacious methods that allow you to have the most conducive outcomes. So you can find more about R2P Academy on Instagram uh, at R2P Academy, and you can see some of the other lecturers that we have and, and follow them as well, because they definitely deliver some amazing information. Thank you for listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more positive reviews we get, the easier it becomes for fine movement professionals like you to find us, and the more time Michelle and I can devote to bringing on high-caliber guests and continuing to produce a high-quality show. If you're still listening, that means you're pretty cool. 
and that likely means your friends are pretty cool too. We'd love for them to become fans of the show. Spread the injury prevention love and the biomechanical knowledge by sharing a screenshot of your favorite episode on Instagram. Be sure to tag at Dr. Michelle Bolin and at Tim Richard DPT when you do. Now get out there and go train.